Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. So welcome to this ACE podcast. I am Vin Tang Precham, the Editor-in-Chief of Endocrine Practice, and I have the pleasure of hosting this edition of the ACE podcast. We have two amazing guests with us today, Dr. George Grunberger and Dr. Jennifer Schur, and I'd like them to introduce themselves. But before I do that, uh, the reason we have these two amazing guests is they are the co-chairs of a brand new ACE guideline on diabetes, well, advanced diabetes technologies that's in this month's endocrine practice published in June. And it was just released at the ACE annual meeting and really excited to have our guests here. And I'd like to have Dr. Grunberger introduce himself first and then Dr. Schur. Great to be here with you, with Jennifer. Thanks, Ben, for having us. I'm George Grunberger. I do diabetes for a living. I've done so for about 40 years, but who's counting by now? I'm chairman of the Grunberger Diabetes Institute at the wonderful Detroit suburb of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And hi, I'm Jennifer Schur. I'm an associate professor at Yale School of Medicine, and I primarily focus on diabetes, both in the clinical and research realm. And part of that is because I've been living with type 1 diabetes since 1987. So very pleased to be part of this effort and to finally share it with the entire community. That's great. I mean, these guidelines, uh, I think we've been waiting for these for such a long time, and I think they're going to be a huge help to the community. So I want to ask my first question to George. Tell us about these guidelines. And as I mentioned, we've been waiting for them. And I know, I mean, they are really going to help us take care of our patients. How did the process start to developing these guidelines? Tell us a little bit about the whole development of these guidelines. Sure. Thanks for asking, because I think it's very important before we sort of get to the sort of innards of what's in it to explain, like you said, the process. First of all, Let's remember that ACE has been around the diabetes technology field for quite a while. What's new is that this is the first time ACE actually has put together bona fide clinical practice guideline according to all the principles established for actually having guideline. And let me just explain very quickly. ACE has done a bunch of consensus statements, position statements on the insulin pump management on glucose monitoring or continuous glucose monitoring, integration of insulin pumps and CGM. But these were position statements. And in those, you can be sort of more free with expert opinions and people basically can say what they actually think about the topic. Clinical practice guidelines, very different. You know, ACE has been stickler to this. And basically it means that you can only have the evidence-based which also means that you are limited to having consideration for the high-level peer-reviewed publications. So that process was very extensive, took about 18 months or so. And I have to tell you that by the time we sort of finished, I mean, to cut it off sometime, we had thousands of references. Then Jen can explain what that advanced diabetes technology is, but that was a challenge because we sort of know what's coming down the pike. 
we know it's being presented, what's about to be published. But again, we could consider only those things, high quality publications published in the best possible sources peer reviewed. So maybe Jen can take it from here, maybe explain a little bit more about the process. Before we move on, I was really happy to see that the grading was really robust. I mean, many of the guidelines you see out there, I mean, most of the grades are low, but I was happy to see there were many A and even B recommendations. And I was just happy to see that the evidence has really gotten to that level. That right. Really and I think it's very important. Thank you for pointing this out because what happened over the years, and I've had a pleasure to sort of be around this for a while for A's, is that the ace Dabi's gurus felt until now there has not been enough hardcore evidence to actually merit the designation of clinical practice guideline. That's why we always did the consensus statements or position statements, but we felt that by now there is enough hardcore evidence actually to do a real guideline. So to follow up on George's question, Jen, so tell the audience, what is diabetes tech? What falls under this umbrella of diabetes? Or as George also reminded me, advanced diabetes technology, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's really important to consider. And the reason we included advanced is because there's so many diabetes technologies out there. And we didn't want to spend a bunch of time reviewing self-monitoring of blood glucose. We've gone beyond that. And so when we're thinking about advanced technologies, we're talking about continuous glucose monitors, whether it be professional CGM, whether it be real-time CGM or intermittently scanned CGM. We're thinking about insulin pumps and even connected pens. There's a little less data around connected pens, but we touched upon it in the guidelines that we created. And then also the bridging of these therapies, you know, having the continuous glucose monitors feeding into pumps, creating systems like a low glucose suspend system a predictive low glucose suspend and hybrid closed loop insulin delivery systems. And we recognize the field is gonna continue to grow and hopefully we'll get to fully closed loop systems, but really those are the technologies we focused on. We also recognize you have to make reference to the numerous apps that are available and the fact that telemedicine is now a staple of care and the pandemic has really changed that. And so I think it really encompasses all of those items. And we tried to be very broad and thoughtful of our description and guidelines regarding all of these advanced diabetes technologies. It must've been really hard to write this as technology continues to grow. I mean, how did you decide like, okay, we're gonna cut it off at this date. I mean, when did you draw the line? <laughs> that was the challenge because since it took such a long time and we literally started, Jen can remind me, we started, I think it was about, I don't know, it was about 10,000 preferences and try to figure out how do we sort of compact it? Because remember, that every single reference had to be reviewed by the task force members. And we actually do, you know, we work for a living and we, are, we actually have day jobs. So to do that was a challenge. And in the end, just during the process, we kept sending more and more and more articles. And so we basically said February 1st, 2021 is it. That's the cutoff. <laughs> and we said, oh my God, is one more. No, that's it. <laughs> and so by now, by June, again, there is a bunch of other things which actually speaks to another thing, which 
we came to that conclusion very quickly, this has to be a living document because any deadline, any cutoff date is arbitrary because the field is now finally coming to its fore and we clearly make, make sure that this is just a foundation and there's gonna be a way to update it as needed because more and more papers will be published on this technology. How is that going to happen? I know we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but yeah, I, I think it's going to have to be updated more frequently than some of the other guidelines that ACE has. So what, what are there some plans already made to, to update this? Well, I'm sure we have plans, but the question is <laughs> who's going to make the decision, right? Just as an example, as you know, ADA several years ago got into this habit because as you know, it publishes every January it's standards of medical care for diabetes, but there are a bunch of times where new things happen during the year and they basically had an online update of the existing standards of care. So again, that's going to be up to ACE to decide what process to adopt, but because this is certainly not a static field. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into the updates. The guidelines just came out, but it is the state of the art guideline as it is right now. Well, let's get down to the meat of it. What patients with diabetes would benefit from an insulin pump? Maybe I'll ask Jen, give us some simple, and it's not so simple, but maybe from the guidelines, who benefits from insulin pump? So I actually want to take a step back as we, we begin to answer this question. And the reason for that is I really want to point out that we were very particular in terms of the wording we used as we captured all of this. We wanted to state who would benefit, not who's the appropriate candidate. And the reason for that is recognizing that many individuals with diabetes can benefit from these technologies. It's not related to somebody's glycemia necessarily at baseline. And so we broke it down into a number of different categories, but when we're thinking about those who would benefit from insulin pump therapy, we really said that individuals who are achieving their glycemic targets, who have minimal time below range, and who are using self-monitoring of blood glucose would benefit from insulin pumps. But the important thing here is that there's so many more caveats and building upon the technology advancements. And so it's almost more that we recognize many persons with diabetes will likely benefit from even more advanced mm-hmm. insulin delivery modalities like automated insulin delivery and trying to be thoughtful about providing that to many persons with diabetes. Well, I, I think what you said was great because I don't think the question is who would benefit just like uh, as I initially stated, but what kinds of technologies would help a patient improve yeah. their diabetes? I think that's probably... And I, yeah, and I think that's probably a better way to state it because in the end, and you know, maybe I'm too crude, maybe too old, but my point is in a way as a clinician, it doesn't make any difference to me how patients who need intensive insulin therapy stick insulin under the skin. Mm-hmm right? Whether it's five, six, or seven shots or continuous insulin delivery is really up to the patient, right? Because in the end, we try to make sure that the quality of life and the outcomes as far as the health and morbidity, mortality are as optimal as possible. And so it's really more that, you know, it's just the insulin delivery is just Mm -hmm. one part of it. But as Jen said, is the glucose monitoring, and the integration, how do you incorporate the knowledge from the high quality glucose monitoring into delivering the insulin 
the way you need it to maintain optimal quality of life. And, and just to piggyback off of that, I think really that's the important thing. You'll notice that upfront in the guidelines, we talk about continuous glucose monitoring and really suggesting that there's a lot of grade A evidence and, and a lot of support in the literature for use of continuous glucose monitoring in persons with diabetes. And we broke it down into various categories of what about children and adolescents? Well, now we have better evidence that it works in that group. What about in pregnant women? And so we really tried to think from the clinical hat of, I have a number of individuals coming in. And as I look at these different populations, it's likely that we'll benefit from embracing more use of glucose monitoring technology. I've seen that in my own practice. Many people have embraced the glucose monitoring technology. And uh, I mean, they could never see a life without it. I mean, before when we were doing just the random finger sticks throughout the day, that seems so archaic now. Now we have the complete picture and patients really see the value in that. Even people in my practice not on insulin really learn a lot about their glycemic control with wearing CGM. So I guess that's a good segue to my next question. As a endocrinologist and I'm sure other healthcare practitioners, they want to know, and I think the guidelines address this, what are we looking at? What are the key metrics that should we be looking at in the CGM? And could you maybe, uh, George, do you want to give us some highlights of what we should look at at the CGM? I think that's very important because as you said, they're just not too many of us, right? And there's so many more people with diabetes who can benefit from continuous glucose monitoring than their endocrinologists. Clearly, we have to make sure that those metrics are widely recognized and been validated to make sure that other people can take advantage of in their practices and their lives. So the key metrics from the CGM, it's like trying to interpret an X chest X-ray. When I was in medical school, they told me the lungs is the last thing you look at. First, I make sure what is the technique? Okay, is the patient position well? Okay, is the quality of the film? Okay, okay. Uh, in words, is there enough data for you to interpret what you're actually looking at? So the same way for the CGM data, you'd like to have at least 14 days of continuous glucose monitoring during which you have at least 70% of data. Or you look at it differently, you need at least 10 full 24-hour days to have enough data to actually begin to interpret. So that's important. That they, Do you have high quality data? Do you have enough data to actually make any sort of interpretations from that? And then when you have that, then you just start looking, okay, what does it tell you? What is the, before you know, worry about these specific details, okay? What is the glycemic variability, okay? I mean, people said at least, you know, the 36% coefficient variation would be sort of the limit. Some people believe it should be less than 33%. Give enough data and it was the variability before we start looking at specific patterns. And then you start getting to nitty gritty and we sort of go into that. What is the time in range? What is the time below range, above range? And then once you sort of get the gist of that, then you can start focusing, okay, what is the thing gonna attack based on that interpretation today? Because it has to be very concrete. And that is easy for us to say, but I used to tell my students in the first 20,000 patients were tough. It's never easy. It's a bit easier. It's the same way to do that. And so it's really important. As you know, ACE had um, the idea, the program to actually teach all clinicians, all comers, 
about how to interpret the CGM data. That's what I really like about the guidelines. It gives people sort of a structured way to look at the data. And we have a really good, you know, good idea of what things we should focus on. I'll admit that I just saw a patient last week and I wasn't in the habit of looking at the quality of the data. And I looked at, I pulled at CGM and said, let me look at how many times you scan. It was like 5%. I was like, ah, oh, I missed that. Time and range was good, but you only scan like 5% of the time. So I think that's something, I mean, I think these are really good uh, in the guidelines. On that topic, I want to ask Jen, when we talk about CGM, I mean, you mentioned earlier, there are so many different kinds of CGM, the professional, intermittent, and real-time. Can you tell us, walk us through, like, which one should we be choosing? Are they different? Are they kind of the same? In order to understand this, I'm going to take a step back and just explain the differences between real-time versus intermittently scanned. So real-time, we know that you're getting data constantly. Every five minutes or every one minute, it may be getting sent over. So you're seeing the data. You have alerts, alarms, and thresholds that are going to be able to help a person with diabetes know that they need to take an action. With intermittently scanned technology, the user needs to actually swipe over the top of a transmitter device to get that glucose reading. Now, I do want to recognize that there have been advances where with some of these intermittently scanned devices, we can now get alerts that you still need to scan in order to see that information. And as we structured the guidelines, we recognize that having more data tends to be better. And so we really recommended that embracing real-time data is a great way to go. And we would advocate for that for most persons with diabetes. However, We also want to recognize that there may be people who don't want data thrown at them constantly. It may be overwhelming. And so understanding and meeting your person with diabetes, where they're at, what they would like is going to really help structure, okay, maybe we'll start you off with intermittently scanned, or if somebody has no interest in CGM at this time, and we want to show them the potential window into their glycemia that CGM affords, using professional or diagnostic CGM to allow them to see this is what's happening, this is what it could afford, and then going ahead to advocate for more regular clinical use of that technology. Great, that's really helpful. I guess on that point, as George was mentioning the integration with the technology with pumps, George, could you talk about that and maybe walk us through like what you might see in the future with these closed loop systems? And maybe that's going to make our life easier as physicians and healthcare practitioners, or maybe it's going to make it harder. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, those are great questions because that fear, let me just start with the last sort of comment you made. People have said, wait a minute, what are endocrinologists going to be doing once the closed loops are actually around, okay? Are we going to be able to find something else to do? But the integration, obviously, is the core here when we talk about advanced diabetes technology. Because, again, the components are insulin delivery systems and the continuous glucose monitoring. But you still need a brain in between to integrate it, right? And so that brain, uh, the controller is basically, you know, what is the core of this integration? And again, just like with the CGMs and insulin pumps, there are many different controllers and we don't have time to go into that. The idea right now is to take those real data, glucose data, 
And that's why, you know, right now the real time is very important because intermittent scan right now is not integrated yet with the pumps. So the brain takes the data from the glucose, you know, sensor and transmitter and then communicates with the pump to tell the pump what to do. And so, you know, as you know, there are different iteration integration. First, there was basically just the integration. You basically saw the data, but the pump didn't do anything with the data. Then you had the, the threshold, you know, basically the low glucose threshold suspend in which at least when the glucose went down below the threshold, the pump stopped delivering insulin. And then it got to the predictive threshold. So when the CGM indicated that you will be in the future hypoglycemic, the pump suspended delivery at that point to prevent hypoglycemia, not just you know, mitigated once you get into hypoglycemia. And then you got into these sort of more advanced systems now, many of the so-called hybrid closed loop systems in which during the time when the patient doesn't eat, hopefully you know, the CGM directs through the brain, directs the pump delivery in such a way that you are staying, hopefully as much as possible in time and range, you prevent the hypoglycemia, but you also can get correction boluses when the system predicts you're about to get hyperglycemic. So it's doing everything possible to keep you in that range. Unfortunately, we do not have yet the full closed systems, right? It's a hybrid means the patient still have to tell the pump when he or she's eating, has to punch in a little carbs because the pump is just not smart enough to know what and when you're gonna eat. So it's a hybrid closed loop, but just, that system already has delivered so many advantages. For example, as long as you don't eat, you should be safe. And I'm sure Jen can certify the fact just the quality of sleep, both for the caregiver, for the parents, for the patient, for people who are on that system, I think brought such an incredible advancement in quality of life. Okay, At the mealtime, you're still on your own. You still have to tell the system what you're eating and when. But the fully closed loop system, maybe Jenna can also address the future trend, is incredibly complicated. Because if you think about that, right now the system is based on changes in glucose levels, right? So it means that the glucose levels to change in order something happen. Well, think about how complicated human physiology is, right? I mean, you see the food, you smell it, you taste it, and all the hormones and whatever cytokines are already in movement, right? So in the future, we will need far more sophisticated sensors, not just continuous glucose sensors, but we will need lots of other variable sensors to be able to integrate whatever happens in your brain when you see and encounter the food in order to make sure insulin delivery is optimized. So we're not there yet, but maybe Jen knows more than I do. Yeah, I want to ask Jen, you touched on the safety, George. I'd like uh, Jen maybe to comment on what physicians and uh, healthcare practitioners need to know in terms of safety and troubleshooting. And maybe if you could also comment on the future and maybe also comment on this new bionic pancreas that we're all waiting to hear about as well. That's a uh, multi-pronged question. So <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll go in terms of the safety of the system. I think that when we're thinking about safety, I think about it with how diabetes management has changed so much in the past decade or two decades. Now we have the ability to detect 
lows, detect highs and keep people safe. I think that just as Dr. Grunberger was saying, the ability of a system to take over and do something rather than requiring an individual to do it is huge because it's great. We've seen, you know, 2008 JDRF CGM trial shows CGM works, but it means that the person with diabetes has to do so much more. And so we're finally at a stage where we're saying, okay, you have diabetes, we can gather this data and we're going to let something else take care of it for you. And so I think that really these studies that are the basis for our evidence show the safety of these systems and highlight that just trying to provide them will keep persons with diabetes safe from both acute and long-term complications of diabetes. I think that the things we need to think about are telling people, okay, well, these are situations where your sensor may not read as accurately. We know there's certain interfering substances or you shouldn't wear them when you're exposed to certain radiology procedures. And so letting people know about that, talking to people about how they monitor data remotely and what happens if there's interruptions. I will tell you as a pediatric endocrinologist, there is a huge fear of parents now when they can't see the data. And I tell them I was diagnosed in 1987. Finger sticks took three minutes. You know, I was on purified pork insulin. Your child's okay. But to try to tell a family that their school-age child is okay and they can't see the data anymore, I think we've really got to remind people of the backup methods that used to be the only method we had in terms of, you know, go back to check your blood sugar. Remember the safety of insulin pumps and being sure that we as clinicians are talking to families about the fact that an insulin pump can stop infusing in terms of having a kink or having an infusion set failure. What are the plans we're going to have in place and who can you call when these situations arise? And then recognizing, okay, well, maybe I have a person with diabetes who's having repeated episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis. And I'm worried about their safety on a system if they're not able to problem solve or attend to it. And how do I negotiate with that person? I need to provide you with continuous insulin therapy to prevent you from coming to the hospital. So safety issues are all abounding and we try to hit on a bunch of them in the guidelines. In terms of moving towards more advanced technologies and the next generation of technology, I think full closed loop is where it's at, what we want, and it's gonna be extremely exciting. I think that you asked specifically about the bionic pancreas, and that's a very interesting development coming out that right now they're primarily focusing in on their insulin only system. However, they're beginning the studies that will look at dual hormone use, glucagon in addition to insulin. And with their, their collaboration with a company that makes a stable glucagon preparation, and these stable glucagon preparations are now on the market, we have the tools necessary to get there. And we know the algorithms in early studies have worked, seeing the longer term exposure and how it works across a broader participant population will be essential. But I have no doubt, this is why, as it was mentioned, we need to update this regularly because it's going to come quick and we all have to stay on top because our people will come and ask. So we've got to be prepared, right? I agree. 
Well, we're running out of time and I just wanted both of you to have an opportunity to tell the audience what you thought were the key messages of the guidelines and what were the big take-home points for you or are the, the most novel part of the guidelines for you. Uh, maybe you could start with George. What are some of your key messages from the guidelines? Well, I would say, first of all, as I said in the beginning, that this field has sort of come of age. And if you think about it, there are any field in which we feel confident we can have evidence-based clinical practice guideline is obviously statement itself. And we try to structure it very practically. We ask very clinically relevant practical questions and try to provide hopefully relevant answers to these based on that evidence. And, and you know, and when there is not enough evidence, we say so. I mean, this is an expert opinion. Hopefully it's going to be updated. So it's really amazing, again, how much data has been already accumulated, which is in that category of sort of higher level evidence, but clearly much more is coming down the pike. And as I said, it's, one of the things was just amazing is how many papers already have been published and how rapidly the field has evolved. But I think the key is going to be also, we talk about safety and other things, is that Really, who should be doing this? And you know, what is the role of a clinical endocrinologist in the future? And how, what is our responsibility? Because we don't have the man and woman power to take care of all these people as these technologies advance. So it's our responsibility to provide these hopefully valid recommendations and be basically the resource for those people who want to know more about it. But it's very important also people realize this is serious business. You're playing with people's lives. And this is not for amateurs. If you want to put yourself as somebody who actually wants to use this in your practice, you better have the infrastructure, the expertise, the training, the dedication, the energy to be there for the patients 365, 24-7 all the time. Okay? Because as Jen said, things can happen. And if you disrupt the delivery of insulin for a long time, the patients will not be happy. So it's really important to take it seriously, but the resources are there. And I think this clinical practice guideline is the foundation with resources. Jen, what were the um, key points for you? So I, I, I think Dr. Grunberger's statement was excellent. And I, I completely agree with all of that. And so not to repeat some of that, I think that to me, it's really thinking about who would benefit from these technologies and changing our mindset from who's an appropriate candidate to who would benefit and recognizing how vast a group that actually entails. And, and looking at the, the various um, insulin delivery modalities and monitoring technologies and really trying to pair up for each individual trying to integrate more advanced diabetes technology into practice. But as Dr. Grunberger said, it needs to be by clinicians who are trained, committed, and experienced to prescribe and willing to be there and support the, their persons with diabetes through and have the infrastructure to do it. So I'm hopeful that we will see more technology use through continued conversations with our persons with diabetes and through hopefully more clinicians being excited to be part of this revolution. 
Well, this has been an amazing uh, chat with both of you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Grunberger. Thank you, Dr. Schur, for joining us on this ACE podcast. I have a feeling that you're going to have to come back in a few months. As you mentioned, these technologies advance so quickly. So I uh, really appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome. And it's a certain pleasure. I'm sure that we will be happy to come back. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.